Before this year, my expectation was that the next big pandemic was going to be flu. And, you know, just because we've had this big pandemic of, of a coronavirus doesn't mean we're not going to have a big pandemic of flu. In 1889, German microbiologist Richard Pfeiffer claimed to have discovered the cause of influenza, a bacterium that he dubbed Bacillus influenzae. Three decades later, much of the medical community remained convinced that bacteria caused influenza. So during the 1918 pandemic, scientists around the country scrambled to develop and distribute vaccines made from Richard Pfeiffer's Bacillus. Dr. William H. Park, the head bacteriologist of the New York City Health Department, produced tens of thousands of doses of a bacterial vaccine, none of which proved successful. The disease flummoxed physicians, who had no understanding of the underlying pathogen that was causing influenza, and no ability to treat the disease. Many Americans turned to quack remedies that were being advertised in newspapers, like gargling with disinfectant or consuming sugar cubes soaked in turpentine. What seemed to work, when anything did, was basic nursing care. Nurses treated the secondary symptoms of the flu, like fever, by providing sponge baths, administering ice packs and aspirin, and giving patients soup and water. Unfortunately, there was little to offer victims who were turning blue or hemorrhaging from the nose and mouth. And no one, no nurse, doctor, or scientist, could explain why influenza, a disease considered to be relatively harmless, was killing with such lethality. What was going on at the microscopic level of the disease? I'm Margot Gray. On this episode of Lost Prologue, we'll hear from scientists, virologists, and doctors to uncover the pathogen behind the world's deadliest pandemic. Chapter 3, The Parasite. The word influenza derives from the Latin root influentia, meaning to flow in. It dates back to medieval times when it was believed that humans could fall ill from liquid flowing down from the stars. As we know now, the source of influenza lies not in the stars, but in a teeny tiny microorganism, a virus. Viral particles are a hundred times smaller than the average bacterium, so small that they aren't visible under an ordinary microscope. In fact, it wasn't until the invention of the electron microscope in the 1930s that scientists first visualized a virus. The shape of the influenza virus ranges from spherical to filamentous, but the basic structure remains the same. The outside of the particle is covered with protein spikes, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and the inside contains eight segments of RNA the virus's genetic code. Viruses are parasites, meaning that in order to reproduce, they must invade and hijack the cells of their hosts. 
When the virus finds a new host, it makes its way to the respiratory tract, where cells are going about their normal business, reading DNA in the nucleus and making RNA to be made into proteins. What viruses have done is they've evolved ways of just capitalizing on that existing machinery. That's Dr. Alan Dove, a virologist, science journalist, and podcaster based in Western Massachusetts. He explained that when the viral particle enters the cell, it disassembles and releases its RNA, the genetic manual for viral replication, into the nucleus. The nice thing for a virus about having an RNA genome is that, to the cell, it looks just like ordinary messenger RNA to be transcribed. So the cell machinery picks it up and translates that and makes proteins, because that's what the cell machinery does, and it doesn't know that it's making viral proteins, which then carry out the virus's life cycle within the cell, the main point of which is to make more virus. The unsuspecting cell is tricked into producing hundreds of new viral particles. When the immune system eventually catches on, it mounts a defense, releasing protective chemicals as well as an army of antibodies, specifically designed to target the spiky proteins on the surface of the virus. After the pathogen's been cleared out, some of those cells that were making those antibodies will stick around and reproduce at a slow rate and give your system a memory of that infection. That's why vaccines work. By exposing the body to a particular pathogen and prompting the creation of specialized antibodies, the immune system is armed and ready to fight the pathogen if it shows up again. But if that's the case, why do we need a new influenza vaccine every year? Well, unlike most viruses, influenza mutates rapidly, leading to changes in the surface proteins of the virus. This shape-shifting allows the virus to evade antibodies from previous flu seasons. And this is why the flu virus keeps evolving and staying ahead of our immunity, whereas many other viruses get wiped out by a population being immune. In the case of flu, this is an evolutionary strategy, so it can keep reinfecting the same population over and over again. Seasonal flu outbreaks are generally manageable, since vaccination protects a large portion of the population from falling ill. Plus, antibodies from previous outbreaks can provide partial protection against the mutated strain. But every few decades, a global outbreak of influenza emerges, infecting multiple countries and continents around the world. Over the past century, four influenza pandemics have occurred. In 1918, 1957, 1968, and 2009. What caused these strains of influenza to spread like wildfire? During pandemic years, an entirely new strain of influenza enters the human population, typically from wild birds. It was Dr. Robert Webster, the chair of virology at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, who discovered that influenza viruses originate in wild birds. 
Webster, now 88, was 35 years old when the seeds of his discovery were planted. The study really began rather as a, uh, a joke when my colleague Graham Labor and I were in Australia and going fishing on the coast of New South Wales. When we got to the shoreline, the beach was loaded with dead mutton birds. And rather jokingly, we said, well, perhaps they all died of flu. The idea fascinated Webster and prompted a series of trips over the next six years to the Great Barrier Reef, where he and Lever swabbed hundreds of birds. Their findings would prove invaluable to the field of virology. Influenza viruses circulate in the intestinal tract of aquatic birds, Dr. Webster explained, and it's very unusual for these viruses to be able to survive in a human at all. Every now and then, somebody usually a poultry worker, will get an avian flu virus. It can be lethal, but in most cases, the virus doesn't manage to spread to other people. The risk of pandemic influenza emerges when the virus adapts by means of complex molecular mechanisms and acquires the ability to transmit from human to human. This process of adapting to a mammal can either occur in a human being or an intermediate host, like pigs. Whereas seasonal influenza outbreaks occur as a result of mutations in existing strains, influenza pandemics occur when an entirely new strain of influenza enters the human population from non-human animals. When this happens, few people in the world, if any, have antibodies that can protect them against the virus. Everyone is susceptible. Pandemic strains vary in severity. The influenza pandemic in 2009, for example, killed approximately 284,000 globally and was nowhere near as virulent as the 1918 strain. What was so special about the Spanish flu? What made that virus so virulent? We have several virologists to thank for the answers, including Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, chief of the Viral Pathogenesis and Evolution Section of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Taubenberger became interested in the Spanish flu in 1995 shortly after taking a job at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, a government institution that had been collecting tissue samples since the Civil War. Dr. Taubenberger developed the idea to search the tissue repository for traces of the virus that had caused the 1918 pandemic. He and his colleague, Dr. Ann Reed, screened 70 or so lung samples from soldiers that had died in 1918. It took about a year, but they ultimately found a positive case of influenza and began sequencing fragments of the viral RNA preserved in the tissue. But Taubenberger worried that they wouldn't have enough tissue sample. I was very concerned that the material that we had from that one case was very limiting and that we may not be able to do the whole genome of the virus from the material available. So we were looking for additional cases. We were looking for ways to make our techniques more sensitive so that we would use less material. 
As luck would have it, Dr. Taubenberger obtained supplemental material from an unexpected source. After publishing the partial genetic sequence of the virus in the Journal of Science, he was contacted by Johan Holten, a retired pathologist living in San Francisco. Back in 1951, Holton had led an expedition to Brevig Mission, Alaska, to dig up flu victims whose bodies were preserved in the icy ground. His mission to culture the virus from the tissue samples had failed. But with the advent of new technologies, Holton believed Taubenberger could now succeed. In August 1997, he returned to the mass grave site in Brevig Mission and obtained lung samples from frozen corpses buried in the permafrost. We had enough material from that to do the complete genome. Now, the way that we had to do it at that time, using the best techniques that we could come up with, it still took uh, nine years to sequence the complete genome of the virus. In 2005, Dr. Taubenberger and Reed completed the full sequence of the virus's genetic code. Unfortunately, the genetic sequence of the virus on paper did not explain its unique virulence. In order to understand the pathogen, it would be necessary to reconstruct the extinct virus. In other words, to resurrect one of the deadliest pathogens in human history. Dr. Taubenberger explained that the decision to reconstruct the virus was made with utmost caution and consideration, and permission went all the way up through the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Health. Only one CDC scientist, Dr. Terence Tumpy, was authorized to reconstruct the virus. To reduce risk, he worked in a high-containment laboratory at the CDC after regular hours. Access to the virus storage freezers required an iris scan of Dr. Tumpy's eyes. It was a technique known as reverse genetics, developed by Dr. Peter Palacy and others at Mount Sinai Medical Center, that enabled Dr. Tumpy's work. And, ultimately, the successful resurrection of the extinct pandemic virus. The reconstruction provided the scientific community with critical insights into the 1918 virus, as well as influenza viruses more broadly, and the development of new antiviral drugs. It was determined that the major cause of virulence in the 1918 virus was a hemagglutinin gene, one that isn't harmful in wild birds, but proves deadly in humans and other species. In laboratory studies, the virus caused deadly infections in mice, ferrets, and non-human primates. It replicated with unusual efficiency, damaged cells at higher degrees than other influenza strains, and elicited a severe inflammatory response from the immune system. Together, the combination of a virulent virus plus a very robust inflammatory response plus secondary infections led to very high mortality. So it's not just the virus itself that was leading to this severe disease, but the secondary pneumonias. Outside the laboratory, 
Descendants of the 1918 virus still live with us today and continue to infect the human population. The 1918 virus was a founder virus, Dr. Taubenberger explained, and 102 years later, we're still in the 1918 pandemic era. The new virus that entered the human population in 1918 and caused a horrible pandemic did not disappear, but evolved into seasonal influenza by about 1920. As the virus mutated to escape population immunity, it lost its particular virulence. Five of the eight genes of the 1918 virus, the core genes that adapt the virus to humans, still circulate inside the H2N2 virus and the H1N1 virus that caused the swine flu pandemic in 2009. The interesting thing is that the single importation of a virus in 1918 that caused tens of millions of deaths in the pandemic itself have ultimately resulted in tens of millions of deaths of influenza in the hundred years since. And so the impact of this virus and a single importation of a bird virus into humans has had an enormous impact. Today, we are significantly better equipped to fight the flu. We have seasonal vaccines that reduce the risk of flu illnesses and antibiotics that can save the lives of those who contract secondary infections. But the influenza virus continues to wreak havoc on the human population. Seasonal influenza remains a significant public health challenge, causing millions of infections and tens of thousands of deaths in the United States every year. And we continue to face the possibility that another influenza strain may emerge and trigger a global pandemic. This is something that is always sitting there in the background and that people in my field talk about all the time. If you look at the data and look at the frequency with which these potential pandemic strains arise, it's actually kind of kind of pucker-inducing. You know, you say, wow, we're just kind of sitting on a time bomb and acting like it's no big deal. 